0: Jonathan Mosen, welcome to Mosen at Large, episode 78, and on the show today, acclaimed technology journalist Ned Desmond joins me to talk about SiteTech Global, a new virtual technology conference, and we'll discuss the way that accessibility is covered by the mainstream technology press. At Large
1: Podcast.
0: While it's been a tough year, the requirement to do things differently does have its benefits. Virtual conferences usually cost less than attending real ones. There are no travel costs. There are no meal and accommodation costs. And for those who find it challenging to navigate unfamiliar destinations, there's much less stress involved. The quality of these events is improving too as we all get better at running them and we're becoming increasingly used to attending them. So I'm a big fan of virtual conferences. I think that they're inclusive and they're quite democratizing. Now, if you've always wanted to attend one of the big assistive technology conferences, but you've been unable to for any of these reasons, you'll be excited about a virtual conference happening in December with an option to attend it free with additional options for a very reasonable nominal charge. The conference is called Sight Tech Global, and it's the brainchild of Ned Desmond, The fact that Ned is behind it is notable because he's an experienced and respected figure in the mainstream tech press. And he joins us
1: now. Ned, it's a pleasure to talk to a legend. Thank you for doing this. (laughs) Thank you very much, Jonathan. I'm really delighted to be here with you today.
0: You did a long stint as a journalist for Time magazine before you got into all of this tech stuff. What lured you to Silicon Valley in the late
1: 1990s to embark on all of this? Uh, That's a great question. Well, I was in Tokyo uh, working for Time Magazine there, and I was writing more and more about the internet and technology, uh, which of course Japan is known for, at least the technology part, maybe not so much the internet. And a good buddy of mine, uh, who is also a media person, but on the business side, turned up as the CEO at one of the early search engine companies, uh, where he was very much a fish out of water because uh, Silicon Valley is really engineering uh, land and media people aren't a great fit. And I think I was just lucky because he was lonely and he invited me to quit my job and come join the internet revolution in Silicon Valley. So for some crazy impulse, uh, I said yes, and I wound up in Silicon Valley and didn't have the faint idea what I was doing in 1996. You've seen a lot of change in that time,
0: booms and busts, companies come and go, uh, resurgences. Of course, when you would have started in 1996 in this field, Apple was really in the doldrums pretty much, wasn't it?
1: It was just before um, uh, Silicon Valley was was muddling along, you might say. And then, of course, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, really got into trouble and went bust. Uh, So it was a fascinating time, a great education for me, certainly. What stands out is that uh, the culture of engineers, which is really what Silicon Valley is all about, is wildly different from anything I have ever encountered. And the money that washed back and forth over Silicon Valley could lead to booms and busts. But the fundamental engine of the place always is motoring along, driven by ideas and great technical talent. Yeah, I too was swept along in the dot-com bubble of the
0: late 1990s and it seemed like it was almost like the, the 1960s all over again. Uh, Peace <laughs> and love and no one had to think about a business model and the money was flowing like water. And it was a, it was a crazy time. Reality had to bite eventually, didn't it?
1: It did. It did. And, um, you know, I, I think so much money washed up then that. It was, there was no way to absorb it. And so I I can remember all kinds of crazy stories about investment bankers from New York turning up and wanting to throw money at anyone who would take it. And it was bound to go bust. It's been interesting to watch in the current uh, buildup of Silicon Valley in the past uh, eight or nine years, how Silicon Valley has both, you know, expanded greatly, but learned a few lessons from that earlier uh, period of time. And one certainly uh, was to keep the investment bankers at bay. But there's a new type of money, uh, which is just the global money, the, the big sovereign funds and the monstrous uh, private funds that are are still managing to build up some pretty amazing valuations here. And when the internet went commercial, there
0: was this view that it was all going to be different this time and that the internet was going to be incredibly democratizing. And I guess to some degree that is still true. But of course, as the congressional antitrust report has just certified, there is an an enormous amount of clout in four major tech companies. It's just turned into another business, really, hasn't it?
1: Uh, it certainly has. And, uh, I think the, uh, dreamy phase of the internet is, is well behind us as, uh, giant technology companies, uh, whether it's, uh, WeChat and Tencent and Alibaba and, in China or Google and Amazon and, and, uh, Facebook and company here in the United States, uh, they, they do have an astonishing amount of market power. It's just mind boggling. Nobody would ever imagine 10 years ago that we would be at this, at this place, I think.
0: And for you personally, you're still doing the TechCrunch gig right now, right?
1: Actually, I, I left TechCrunch officially at the end of August. Okay. I resigned back in January, but I, I left, and um, the uh, it had been eight years and a terrific eight years, wonderful team. But uh, that was a long time, and I wanted to try something new. And so, what are you doing right now? Well, as a as a project that will carry me through to December, I'm uh, producing an event called Psych Tech Global, which you mentioned at the very kindly at the start of this uh, podcast. And that event really flows out of um, three different inspirations. First is my wife, who has retinitis pigmentosa and is, is almost completely blind. The second is uh, the organization that helps and supports her, which is the Vista Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired, which has been doing great work in Silicon Valley for 75 years. And the third was my work experience at TechCrunch, um, where we produce a lot of events and um, one that really uh, one series that really got my interest and I did most of the programming for uh, focused on AI and robotics and we produced one with MIT and three with Berkeley and I picked up a good layman's understanding of, of how AI was moving forward and it became increasingly clear to me that for a lot of accessibility and assistive tech AI was already a mainstream technology and really responsible for a lot of very interesting things uh, not all of them good by the way but most of them quite beneficial. And I could see this in my wife's life. Amazon Alexa is a great benefit to her. Uh, Uber is uh, a a true wonder to her. And other things that um, one way or another are influenced or made possible by AI uh, types of technologies. So I thought it might be wonderful to produce a show on this. And um, what I did was check around with a lot of people who are working specifically on that uh, line between accessibility and assistive tech and AI and AI-related technologies. And the response I heard very consistently was, great, great, great. We'd love to have this show. It's a perfect time to focus on our work uh, and what it means for the future. Um, so we launched Site Tech Global, and, and here we are today. We're a couple of months out or less from the show itself.
0: Now, my listeners will throttle me if I don't ask you this question, so I'll get it out of the way. We've had lots of discussion on this podcast over a long period about blind pride and how people are reluctant to use the word blind Um, particularly in the mainstream community, it's sort of become like people clear their throat and try and find any other possible word. And so we were originally in touch because I wrote and said, you know, have you ever thought about the uh, consequences of using a term like Tech Global instead of just putting blind front and centre of the conference? Tell me about the genesis of the name Tech Global and, and why you chose that one.
1: Right. I, I appreciated your note, Jonathan. And it was, I have to uh, confess, it was, uh, an eye-opener to me. I didn't fully appreciate the, uh, that, that that discussion was going on in the community about reluctance to use the word, uh, blind or blindness. And I, we might have made a different decision on the name if, if, if I'd been fully aware of that. But the, a genesis of the name was was pretty simple. We were uh, looking for a name that conveyed uh, a literal sense of what the event was about, because that's important in any event name. We wanted to make sure people knew it was a, a, a show predominantly about tech, and so we came up with SiteTech Global. We also threw in global because we were making the show free and virtual. To your points uh, earlier, so this would open it up to everybody around the world who was interested in these topics, which. By itself is is a kind of a revolutionary idea, um, compared to what has gone before. So the idea of sight and tech, uh, in my mind anyway at the time, simply meant that these were technologies that provided sight in in one shape, form or another, and and um, it was as simple as that. It might not have it might have been a little bit misguided, but that's how I was thinking at the time. You
0: have a great series of speakers already lined up. Do you want to tell us about some of the people who are going to be
1: presenting at the conference? Yes, indeed. Some very exciting ones, really. Uh, I'm uh, Josh Miele, uh who has uh, been in the uh, circle of uh, invention and technology around the, uh, UC Berkeley for many years and, and recently joined Amazon, uh, is one a remarkable speaker. Uh, he'll be joining Ann Toth uh, from, from Amazon to talk about Alexa, uh, the underlying technologies. And uh, in my mind, I'm not going to put words in their mouth, the evolution of Alexa in the direction of becoming something like a more uh, personal agent, uh, which I know in broad terms, that's what Amazon talks about. So I, I think this would be probably pretty welcome. But by the same token, I know uh, my wife uh, can get clearly very annoyed when Alexa uh, seems to be mimicking uh, almost uh, a human-like presence in her life. So it'll be interesting to, to hear the um, Alexa team talk about that. Uh, we have Saqib Sheikh uh, from Microsoft, who is the co-founder of Seeing AI. And uh, he's a remarkable and delightful guy in so many ways. I, the fact that that whole project grew out of uh, two years of Microsoft hackathons and that he not only launched a product, but he now has his own engineering team dedicated to moving that product along. And that furthermore, it's become, in a sense, a thought leader project for the development of Microsoft's Azure cloud and the development of what they call cognitive services. So it's, it's a really interesting window into a future where uh, we sometimes talk about uh, uh, around here on the team that's programming this event, the notion of perception as a service. And that um, instead of trying to put a lot on a device or a phone that would help a person understand the world around them better, uh, instead, so much might be in the cloud. And uh, for instance, facial recognition, context recognition, navigation, which is already largely the case today, more and more uh, precision and data will become available to people who need that data in order to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. So uh, that's very much how Microsoft is looking at the future and seeing AI is is such an important testbed for a lot of that uh, thinking and infrastructure. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing from Saqib Sheikh. One person we brought in, not because he's an accessibility person at all, but he's one of the world's top experts on AI uh, and how it's influencing society and business and the future as a uh, gentleman named Kaifu Lee, who... Um, is uh, runs something called Sinovation Ventures, but is an American trained uh, scientist and innovator who did a lot of remarkable work at MIT and CMU and is now in China and has a lot of insights on uh, how AI is unfolding, in particular uh, in Asia. It's going to be interesting to hear from him because he's got a little bit of a window into the future and how things can evolve in one place. And they're definitely evolving differently in the United States. Uh, He's actually written a book about that, um, which is quite a good book. And so it'll be fun for him to sort of set some broader societal and technology context, uh, perhaps to, to help orient people to the big picture, you might say. Another great uh, person we have coming is um, uh, Donna Garari at the University of Texas, uh, who's done a lot of groundbreaking work on computer vision databases and identifying and defining what's missing from them and how they need to be made better with particular emphasis on what people with disabilities need from uh, computer vision databases. And she's done a a long series of papers that have really – uh made her an admired figure in this in this technical community so that's just a sample we have about 40 speakers at the event we're very proud of the lineup it's a great group it is a very good lineup indeed
0: one of the things you're also discussing at site tech global is something we've been discussing on the podcast recently and that is self-driving vehicles yes. and the potential impact on blind people as an expert in this field What do you think of that? There's been a bit of debate on this show where some blind people are saying that it is unreasonable for us to expect that in our lifetimes, we will get to the point where a blind person can potentially own or rent and jump in a self-driving car and get from point A to point B, that that's just a pipe dream.
1: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I I would have agreed (laughs) uh, not long ago with uh, your um, listeners who feel that way. But just the other day, Waymo, which is, of course, a spin out of Google Alphabet, announced that they are now in full commercial rollout in uh, Arizona, in Phoenix, with exactly what you just described, a self-driving taxi that you can summon with an app, and it pulls up and you hop in and uh, it takes you to your destination uh, this has been in trial down there for many years, uh, and they've worked um, closely with a local organization. And apparently, it works. It was—it's funny. I have a little backstory there to tell. Uh, I have a number of friends at Waymo, and I used to joke that uh, the day my wife could summon a self-driving taxi and go where she wanted, she probably wouldn't have much use for me anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so a friend of mine said, "Well, let's test that by inviting her over for a drive." And uh, we agreed, and it was great fun, and we got into a big van with some engineers and a test driver, and all the rest and they uh, said well let's uh, let's start the ride, and since we're doing this for you, Mrs. Desmond, would you please press the start button so we can get rolling to your destination and Of course, she said, "Well, how am I supposed to know where the start button is and And they all had kind of a nervous laugh and said, "Right, okay." <laughs> Right. So, yeah. Uh, but it yeah. was actually all in the best possible spirit because um, Waymo has been working very hard on these questions and trying to understand right from the get-go uh, what people with a variety of disabilities need in order to make this make sense for them. And uh, a lot of it's very practical as Waymo people have explained it to me. You know, if an Uber driver or a Lyft driver pulls up and they see someone, for example, with a cane standing a few feet away because they know their name, they can say, Hey, Ned, can I get out of the car and help you? Or uh, Mm. what, how can I be of assistance? But of course, that's not going to happen in a driverless taxi. So how do you close the last 10 feet, I guess, or 20 feet with an unsighted person? Really interesting question. And the Waymo team is sending the head of accessibility for the Waymo project to the show to talk about how they've been figuring that out. That is a great story because it just illustrates how
0: important it is that we as users of the technology are involved at every level in the design of that technology.
1: Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a newcomer to this field and uh, not tech in general, but certainly to accessibility and tech. And uh, that that has come through for me over and over again. And... Um, it might strike some people as obvious that the that the users need to be front and center and no matter what product you're designing. But even in the course of building the show, I've been called up a few times by founders who had very early stage companies and they had some something they thought was a great idea um, for people who had vision loss or who were blind. And uh, my colleagues who are much more experienced have said, well, Ned, you should always ask them, you know, what kind of relationship they have with people in the community and several times I've heard well we haven't tried it yet we haven't gotten anybody in here and I said well you know <laughs> even I yeah. know that that's not a good idea guys and we're not going to put you on stage if you if you haven't made those kinds of connections and and started to work with uh, the community yet
0: yes absolutely I've worked in product management for assistive technology companies and it's amazing how often people just come in thinking they have absolutely got the next best thing you know and they just don't understand how blind people live and work, and there's a fundamental flaw, and I almost feel sad about it because they feel so passionate and genuine, and they may well have got quite a long way down the road of product design before they thought, oh, maybe we should show this to a blind person. Actually, I think the fact in my product management roles, the fact that I was a blind person was incidental. What they were doing was coming to an assistive technology company, hoping that I would scoop it up, Ah. uh, you know, and I just happened to be a blind person. I see. Who could comment? I see from a blind person's perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's it's a very interesting problem. You you encounter it often in my experience in early engineering led companies. I I remember a few years ago there was a rash of startups in Silicon Valley that attempted to help women try on clothes virtually online as part of the shopping experience, and um, I saw a number of these companies when I was working at TechCrunch, and the question was the same. You know, there'd be two shy engineers. Sorry to stereotype engineers that way, but in this case, <laughs> yeah. they were. And I would say, well, have you have you tried this out on, on women who are customers? And one guy literally said, no, do you know any? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so obviously, they had a ways to go, even though technically, it was very interesting. And not surprisingly, it was a total failure. So technical interest and excellence don't necessarily, of course, equate with much of anything. You alluded
0: to complex philosophical questions, and that's also one of the things that we've been talking about in the context of self-driving cars. For example, these things are making billions, even trillions these days of decisions every second, and it's a completely different process from human intuition. It may be better or it may be worse, but I've been citing the example, for instance, of a self-driving vehicle hooning along the road and realizing very quickly that this toddler- who has just run out onto the road, is going to be killed if you continue on a trajectory. But if you veer, if you swerve to avoid the toddler, the person, the human in the self-driving vehicle is most likely going to be killed. And I mean, that is a decision, a calculated decision that a computer will have to make. And they're pretty difficult questions for us as a society to come to terms
1: with. They are indeed. Um, And I I think it will be a headline grabber for many years to come, and uh, society will have to contend with the notion that I think, as um, I think most people would accept, the idea that absent uh, driver error and driver distraction, that if we were predominantly in self-driving cars, the overall uh, death and, and injury rate uh, from driving would decline dramatically. But by the same token, we'll be confronting horror stories along those lines. I mean, in this town, they often describe it as the trolley problem. And it's just uh, another version of what you described. Uh, Do you risk the passengers' lives or do you take the pedestrians' life? Ultimately, the vehicle has to be programmed to do one or the other. It's a very difficult um, moral dilemma and, and an absolutely fascinating one. Yes, it is. It
0: takes me back to my ethics brain-breaking classes in university. I mean, these, these are not new problems, but technology kind of focuses the mind in a new way. Right. Uh, very interesting. So you've got a lot of great speakers, and I'd encourage people to check out site techglobal.com to get the full list. What's the process of attending? I take it you've taken great care to ensure that
1: it is all a very accessible process. Uh, we're certainly doing our best. We've made a number of decisions about the, the flow of the event uh, in order to Make it as accessible as possible. Uh, currently, in order to register, uh, we direct people to Eventbrite, which our uh, our consulting partner, Fable, in Canada has researched pretty carefully and said that among the ticket vendors for online events, Eventbrite has the best accessibility. Yes, it's very good. Yeah. Uh, so that's where it's possible to pick up a pass. Passes are free, and if you choose to, you can make a twenty five dollar donation to the Vista Center. That's not necessary. And then on the day of the show or the day before, with a reminder, the day of of the show, we'll send an email to everyone saying that here's the the URL where you can go to uh, enjoy the show. And uh, this is where we ran into a pretty significant roadblock as we were doing our planning. I, before leaving TechCrunch, had done an extensive study of what are called the virtual event platforms, which are the many, many companies out there that are offering to simulate a trade show or a tech event or what have you entirely online which doesn't necessarily sound all that complicated. But in order to make it a a coherent event, they build something that you might think of as a platform with certain kinds of functionality built into it. And um, as we reviewed these for TechCrunch, uh, we made some decisions about which ones to use and in what setting. And then when I started working on PsychTech Global and I was consulting with... uh, our friends at Fable, uh, we came pretty quickly to the conclusion that most of these platforms, if not all, uh, don't do a good job with accessibility. And then watching some of the shows that took place earlier this year that were quite prominent that did use platforms of one type or another, um, the results weren't too hot. So we went back to the drawing board um, after harassing a few of these guys that I know pretty well and saying, hey, when are you going to uh, retrofit your, your front end code so that the, these things work well with screen readers and, and they're intelligible to people who are coming at them from that direction? And some of them got very energized and I know they're working hard on it, but as a practical matter, they're not going to be ready for us in early December so what we decided to do, um, and I worked very closely with a colleague of longstanding, a guy named Dimitri Paperny, who has his own design studio, Cohere, Cohere Studio, to take the simple path here, uh, because we're both very experienced uh, in terms of um, product development uh, online, and essentially create a single page that we could build in WordPress on our website uh, with the assistance of Fable that would be uh, what we hope, I, I hope, I'm not getting uh, over my skis on this, but will essentially be uh, accessibility first. So the whole experience is designed uh, with a screen reader in mind. And it's been educational to 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 talk about how to do this and what it means with the fable team in particular. But we think we've got it figured out. And the event will simply live on two pages. One will be dominated by a player, the other will be dominated by an agenda. And it'll be relatively easy if we get this right to toggle between two tabs and not have the noise of a screen reader interfering with the playback from uh, what will be a YouTube player for the mainstream or webinar players uh, for the breakout sessions. So we hope if we get this right, that the community will say thank you. We could enjoy the show without having to puzzle through strangeness on the platform.
0: Will there be the opportunity for Q&A at any of these sessions? Because you've got some speakers there that I'm sure many of my audience would love to have a chat to.
1: Yes, indeed. The way we've structured this is uh, similar to what TechCrunch does. We like to have a professional moderator uh, speak to the panel or or the fireside uh, subject for 25 minutes or so. And then some of the speakers will then go into a Zoom webinar, and there will be a moderator in there as well. But the purpose of the moderator in the Zoom webinar is simply to take questions from the audience. And the audience submits questions through this app, uh, which is also, I think, well regarded in in a community called Slido. And so the moderator will be uh, monitoring a Slido feed and and relaying those questions to the speakers. So there will be some uh, opportunity there for direct uh, Q&A between the audience and the speakers. And the Q&A, is that part of what you get for the $25 nominal fee that you can pay? Uh Yes, everyone gets everything yeah. in the end. Okay. Um, at one point, we were trying to create a tiering uh where you had to pay your $25 to get access to certain things. But we realized it was going to make the accessibility angle more complicated to work out. And we thought, There's not really that much point to it because uh, for some people, $25 might be a burden and it wasn't entirely fair. So um, we just decided to leave it open to everyone.
0: So if you can donate, donate basically. Please. Yeah, that would be wonderful.
1: You mentioned the accessibility of some of these virtual
0: event platforms before, which takes me to a broader question about the way that accessibility is perceived in the mainstream. I imagine that like many blind people who approach vendors about accessibility problems, you will have had a range of reactions there from a shrug of the virtual shoulders to, as you say, enthusiasm, but it's going to take a while. Was that an eye-opener for you, if I might use that expression, that some people probably just didn't really care, have never given any thought to the fact that there are blind and low vision people, people with other disabilities out there who want to use these things and are being shut out?
1: You know, I, I would say of the many things I've learned in the course of producing this show, that's right at the top of the list. I was really surprised and I'm not often all that, su- it's hard to surprise me uh, by the half dozen times I heard from both uh, really important event producers working at major media brands in the business world, uh, that's as specific as I'll get, uh, and also the founders or CEOs of extremely important event platforms that were carrying, you know, sometimes Dozens of virtual events in a given day that they had, they claimed they had never even heard of this. Now, there were others who said, yes, we were aware, but our platform is 10 years old and and it's so costly to try to update it, Um, but we're aware. And they had just made the decision grudgingly to not upgrade it, although they're very concerned because, as I'm sure everyone knows, in the United States, um, things are becoming um, better enforced when it comes to the ADA in connection with anything taking place in a browser. But still, there were so many people who didn't know. And I found that hard to believe.
0: So it wasn't so much that they didn't care. It was that they genuinely didn't know. They didn't know. That brings me to my next question, actually. And I mean, I don't want to hold you to account for the entire species that is the tech (laughs) journalist. Thank you. I appreciate that, Jonathan. (laughs) (laughs) We, we often get feedback on the show about the coverage of assistive technology in the mainstream press and what little coverage there is seems often to be quite sycophantic. There's next to no coverage of companies that drop the ball, you know, in a way that seeks to hold their feet to the fire for the fact that they've dropped the ball. And over some years now, there has been increasing concern in the disability community about quality control issues, particularly where Apple is concerned, who've done a fantastic job with their feature set. But quality control in particular in the blindness market at any rate, which is the one I'm most familiar with, has really had some very serious issues to the point that with some new iOS releases, there was one where it was impossible for some blind people to even answer the phone. And obviously, if... Uh, sighted people who depended on their iPhones for their business couldn't answer the phone, it would be headline news until there was a fix. And I would suggest to you that Apple would have rushed out a fix overnight for an issue as fundamental as that. And yet blind people had to hang on for quite some time until that was fixed. But as I say, the only coverage that I generally see is how wonderful it is that these companies are doing these things for these disabled people. It it almost could have come directly from the PR departments Mm. of the companies concerned. And I don't understand why that's the case. There are articulate blind bloggers who have been trying to bring these issues to the fore. I myself have written to many mainstream tech journalists about, for example, a recent issue where Apple knowingly, it wasn't just a bug, they knowingly released a public beta, the first one, the first public beta of Watch OS, knowing that voiceover was disabled. So that limited the amount of time that blind people could test and provide feedback at a critical stage of the development cycle. It was right there in the release notes. <laughs> voiceover doesn't work with this public beta. I think that's... Atrocious behavior to actually exclude a group of people knowingly, willfully from a public beta cycle. And I set up a petition on change.org accordingly. Uh, so I wrote to a range of tech journalists about this, did not get one peep back from anyone. And it, it's pretty demoralizing when I guess
1: people just expect us to shut up and gratefully accept what we get. That's, that's a really disappointing story. Um. I I can understand the dynamic that produces this story. Um uh, you know Apple of course has has done some wonderful work um mm. and they probably uh even if it's maybe not maybe not fully self-aware that is in fact what they're doing. Uh, they're saying, well this is a captive audience, they can't do much about it, so they'll just have to wait until we get around to fixing this issue. That's right. Exactly right. And uh that's that's very unfortunate. It's I think deeply disrespectful. Um, and and uh, not at all in line with Apple's uh, official corporate values. But all tech companies, uh, big tech companies uh, make these trade-offs. I'm sure that um, similar things could be said about others. Um, I'm aware of some of them, but probably not mm-hmm. with anything like the precision that you are. I think the more surprising to me in some ways is that you've had a hard time getting a hearing in the in the mainstream press on these issues. The problem with there's a practical problem dealing with tech journalists is that they're deluged with information. Uh so they miss things and they'll they'll readily admit that. So, you know, I can offer you this, uh that if you cared to write about that topic, either, uh, when, when it's happening or in reflection, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure the TechCrunch editors would be interested and I would be happy to introduce you to somebody who would be interested. And of course, then it's up to them, uh, what they chose to do.
0: Yeah. And I don't know if TechCrunch is still running comments or not. Some publications have chosen not to anymore, but it's also pretty sad, I guess is the best word I would use, when you do get stories that perhaps highlight accessibility issues. And the one that really comes to mind is the blind guy who took on dominoes over the inaccessibility of their website right. in the U.S., rightfully so. And uh, when you look at some of the comments about that and you see people saying, this is just political correctness gone mad, why can't they have somebody read to them or why can't they pick up the phone and order the pizza? You know, all those things filter through to things that are really important like job prospects. Some of the people making those comments are employers. Uh, so you know, it, it's, it's a really serious issue. And I, I wonder what responsibility the tech press has for educating people about the importance of accessibility and perhaps
1: making it more of a prominent issue than it otherwise is? I think uh, we have a lot of responsibility for that. And um, it's also important to educate ourselves. I've learned uh, certainly a lot in the course of producing this show. As I've said, there are so many angles to this. There's the, the human angle that nobody should be excluded and the you know the benefits of of thinking these things through on behalf of various p- communities with disabilities is is just something we should all do in a civilized society it shouldn't really be a discussion and some companies are breaking some great ground in this respect you know Fails salesforce mark benioff for example is a great leader in this way and and you know even though we we faulted apple a little bit earlier uh, and we could fault other tech companies they've they've done some great work we just don't think yes, they sure. they keep it front and center and they they don't they sometimes their priorities might get out of out of line um but i do think journalists could know a lot more about it and i think that when you talk to them about Kind of a practical point of view on all of this, setting aside the good civilization, good humanity point of view. So much of the tech that um, the whole world benefits from has grown out of very difficult engineering and product work that was specifically undertaken to help people who are blind or, or visually uh, disabled. You know, Ray Kurzweil, of course, is a story that everybody knows very well. Uh, But I was talking from a completely different angle with Cecily Morrison in the UK recently, uh, who is working on the development of AI agents and what they would mean for people with disabilities. And uh, she's got these really fascinating thoughts about how AI has to be personalized in order to be relevant and so many different angles, which take you out of the sci-fi realm and place you squarely in the practical realm uh, trying to develop AI-based products that really work for people as opposed to just the same old engineering loop that we were talking about earlier. And um, she said one of the great things about her work is that sometimes when they're advancing very primitive models uh, that uh, sighted people probably would never uh, pay much attention to, she said the best testers are blind people. Because they're more patient, uh, they're very thoughtful, uh, they are really delighted when they can extract some interesting results from this technology. Um, so she calls them sort of super uh, testers uh, for early stage work because their responses and understanding are so acute uh, given where they're coming from. So, you know, there's so much there, uh, there's such uh, a richness. In the reality of product development that incorporates people with disabilities, the goodness for them and the larger societal benefits, it's all known, it's all very real, and I I think more people just need to understand it better. See, this
0: is why I was so excited to read that you were doing this, because obviously you've got that personal connection, but it does sound like the process of you doing this conference has been a bit of a road to Damascus experience for you. Yes. And I just wonder what you intend
1: to do with all of this newly acquired information when this is all over. <laughs> That's a great well, I, I First, I intend to make sure that it happens again next year. I think uh, I hadn't really thought about this up front, but I think it's going to be helpful to my former TechCrunch colleagues because they're going to have a lot of new voices in their lives. You know, beyond that, it's a really good question, Jonathan. I don't know, but I, I want to make sure that, that there's some momentum that comes out of this event that not only serves as a great fundraiser for the Vista Center, which which really needs the funding support, but um, helps improve the sensibility and deepen and broaden the sensibility that comes along with uh, this work and this project.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to it. I will be registering myself. And so that is Site Tech Global. Just to so the dates for that?
1: December 2 and 3. It's uh, from 8 to noon uh, Pacific time. Uh, which will allow us to catch a big part of the globe at a reasonable hour. Fantastic.
0: And the website, site tech global, all one word.com. And uh, you can go there and register. I really appreciate you giving us some time there and I hope the event goes well for you. We'll
1: look forward to uh, following up and finding out how well it went. Thanks very much, Jonathan. It's a real uh, pleasure to speak with you and thank you for inviting me.